0: So that was Lauren Greenfield, who has spent her last 25 years, 30 years, um, photographing the incredibly wealthy, the top 1% of the top 1%. And after spending three decades doing this, she said that she found that to a person, the people that she was uh, photographing were not happy and boring, that... And this is somebody who after three decades of getting exactly what a lot of us think we want, is radioing back saying, don't believe the lie. That these are people who, they have all the resources to do everything and they find themselves trapped by it. Now, the interesting. we're going through a series called Preaching What We Practice where we talk about what we practice. And today we're going to talk about a practice that Christians around the world do every Sunday um, to remember the world is not like what we thought it was. And we're going to talk about that. The practice of giving. It's been called a lot of things throughout the years. Alms giving, tithes and offerings. But it's this practice that Christians have done from the beginning And and the answer, the reason we do this, there's several reasons, but the Bible is really nuanced when it comes to talking about money. Because the answer isn't to become just extremely poor, it's incredibly nuanced when it talks about what we do with money. So a couple of weeks ago, Leslie took the kids to the Capitol, there was a group of homeschoolers that were going to the Capitol, and they took them to a room where they all got to hold like $600,000 in cash. Like in their hands, stacks of cash. That's right. You did that, Joel. Yeah. So they're holding it. And I, it is an incredible amount of trust to let kids hold that amount of money. Because my kids were telling me, like, they were looking for escape routes. But at one point, there was this other homeschool mom who was holding all this money. And she said, this would solve so many of my problems. <laughs> and Leslie said to her, did you mean to say that out loud? <laughs> And I do have good news for you today. If you feel like that, if you feel like money would solve most of your problems, the good news is you don't really have that bad of problems. Because if your problems can be solved by money, your problems aren't that bad. So we live in a world of money. At least Karl Marx thought so. Karl Marx is famous for uh, for saying this particular thing. This is the argument that he gives his life for, and he's been very persuasive. The history of all society is the history of class struggle. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman—in a world, in a word, oppressor and oppressed—they have stood in constant opposition to one another, carrying on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight—a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. And Karl Marx has been very influential because Karl Marx has a point. We live in a world built by the suspicion of Karl Marx. And he does have a point because you've seen this, right? You've seen this with pastors, politicians, parents. How money can make us turn us into these kinds of people that just get more and more and less and less considerate of other people. And I'm glad Karl Marx taught us to be suspicious of money. But it's not the whole truth about money, is it? I'm not a Marxist. Um, I, I think Karl Marx has a lot to say about human history. But I'm talking to the baptized church of Jesus Christ, and we are not humanity. We are a new humanity. And here's what the person we were baptized into says it's much different than Marx. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Do you believe that? This is Jesus 101. The first Christians, uh, Paul wrote a letter, um, just one of the first letters in your New Testament was to a church in Colossae. And in a baptism passage, Colossians 3, he's talking to people that what they would say when they were getting baptized, who they were becoming after they got baptized. He would say, put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, to modern people, we hear idolatry and we think of like people bowing down to statues, but the Bible is clear on this. Idolatry can be anything because it comes from our heart. And the first banks were temples. Did you know that? Because they knew what we have forgotten. Think about a world that worships money. Think about how we would treat relationships. Think about the language we use to talk about our relationships. We're investing in them. You view the world through cost-benefit analysis. And here's the problem with that. When you do that, then you stop caring or having relationships with people who are, let's say, unprofitable. Who are disabled or elderly or the weak or the young or the most vulnerable? And here's the problem: Are we not all going to be in those categories at some point in our life? And so, one of the skills for living in a life, in a world like this is, and it's downright admirable in a world because nobody's doing this, is to be able to know when enough is enough. It's to know when what would be an admirable 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 desire to like, you know, be able to provide for your family or yourself, has crossed a line into something else, the slippery slope of greed. These days when we talk about churches, what church we should go to, what church, we ask, is the church meeting my needs? But the church is not just about meeting your needs, the church is also about judging our needs. Because maybe it's really not a need. Maybe you don't need that, maybe i don't need that, and the church is also about giving me needs that I would have if I, that I wouldn't have if I had not met Jesus. did you know, and this is true statistically that people who have less money are more generous people who have less money give more percentage wise did, did you know um, I was listening to NPR the other day I know i I uh, look like NPR and sound like Duck Dynasty. But I was listening to NPR the other day, and there was a a survey, or it was a large survey done by the Institute of Philanthropic, whatever, uh, they they are real. Um, And they were saying that if people who have a lot of money spend time with people who don't, it makes them more generous. Because you stop comparing yourself to people in a slightly higher socioeconomic bracket. And all of a sudden you start realizing that what you thought was a need is really just a want. And we need this. We need to have the kinds of courage to be able to say no to things that we can afford. It is downright heroic for a parent to tell their kid, yeah, that family went on that trip, but we're not going to do it because we have a different story. We have a different set of values. We have a different set of callings. And this is hard. In fact, it requires war. So I want to show you a symbol, a Christian crest from a Christian group that has um, been around for a long time. Blood and fire and a sword. There's a cross in the middle and a sword and S for sin and salvation. And I don't know about you, but in a, a post-Christian world, that's a little bit nervous. Like Ever since the Crusades, we've been like, let's keep the swords out of the crest, shall we? <laughs> but you want to know who this is? <clears throat> Go to that next slide. The salvation Army. That crest is the cross, salvation from sin, and the swords are to fight, to do war against our own sin. And blood and fire is the motto of them. The blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I like about this. The call of Jesus is not just to get people to be a little bit nicer to each other. It's not about what we do primarily in the voting booth. It's to realize there's something serious at stake here. That something needs to die. Jesus actually refers to money as a named power. He calls it mammon. It's not neutral. It's something that we need to handle with care. There's a spiritual battle happening inside of me and inside of you. And it's something, especially in our world today, it is so easy to just slip into being comfortable with something that if we knew what it would do to our lives, our joy, and our souls, we would never let it. But it's so easy just to slip into it like a warm bath. But over time, it can rot our souls. And so, since there's a lot of passages in the Bible condemning greed, you can basically just open your Bible and flip to any spot and find one. But today I want to look at one that you may know if you grew up in church, but not associated it with greed, although that's really what it's about. It's a story of one of the patriarchs, Abraham. Who God has called to leave everything. Friends, family, everything. And he's traveling to a place unknown to him. And he's got his nephew Lot with him. And his nephew Lot and he, they come to a, a, a place where there's two different lands. One has rich pastures and luscious grass and it's like Paradise. And the other one is not that. It's got rocky soil. It'll be a lot harder to scratch out a living. And if I'm Abraham, I'm the oldest, I'd be like, well, what? You, you know where you're going. But Abraham doesn't. He actually gives his nephew the choice. He says, do you want to go here or do you want to go here? I'll take the other. And Lot chooses what you would choose, what I would choose. He's like, well, I don't know. It's a no-brainer. I want to take the luscious paradise. And Abraham takes the other. And... Lot goes to Sodom. Now, when you think of Sodom, you may have certain ideas about Sodom, but Sodom actually was not just about sexual sin. In fact, in the prophet Ezekiel it says, This is the sin of your the this was the sin of Sodom. They were inhospitable and did not care for the poor and needy. Which is interesting. Because God was watching them not care. And when God holds them to account, after His patience has come to an end, He is going to destroy Sodom. But Because He can't find anyone righteous. There's no way of changing the city because there's no one righteous in the city. So He's going to destroy it, but He's going to save Abraham's nephew, Lot. He sends two angels to do it. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 12. The two angels said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? They're going to rescue them before the Lord destroys the city. Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-laws or sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against His people is so great He has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was only joking. So this is the biblical precedent for not liking your (laughs) son-in-laws. With the coming of dawn... The angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters, and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had been brought out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plains. Flee to the mountain mountains, or you will be swept away. But and by the way, the mountains are where Abraham's living. But Lot said, no, please, my Lord. Your servant has found favor in your eyes. And you've shown me great kindness by sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a small town near enough to run to. It's very small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said, "Uh, very well. I will grant you this request too. And here's what I want you to see. Because Lot's... We live in a land of Lot. We live in a land like Lot. And Lot has become so attached to the good life that he can't leave it even when it means he's going to be destroyed. Abraham, on the other hand, can trust in God's promises and pick up and go. And Lot is stuck where he's at. You know the Latin word, greed, actually is a Latin word for craving. It's like an appetite. And the more you feed it, the more appetite grows. Now, here's the thing. Whenever people in church start talking about money, because Marx has a point, we've seen a lot of abuses. You've seen a lot of abuse. Maybe you've been a part of a lot of it. But the deeper reason I think we get a little bit cynical when people talk about money in church is because we like living in a land of lot. We've got a lot. And so all the warnings in the Bible about how greed can wither our, our soul and destroy our, joel, our joy, we respond like lot. And here's what I want you to see because I think this is true. And I get it. I live in the same world you do. We are arguing with angels who are trying to save our soul. Let me ask you it another way. Do you feel trapped? Do you feel really free? You know, Jesus, that one time when a rich young ruler comes to Him, Jesus loves the guy. He's trying to save the guy. He's trying to do exactly what the guy asked. He wants eternal life. The the word word is used like the kind of life life to the full that starts now and goes forever. That's what he's asking Jesus for. And Jesus says to him, he answers his question. He's like, "All right, you want that? Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. You can be one of my followers. And the guy walks away Sorrowful. sorrowful, sad. Because he just realized that all that money he had really had him. He had a prison, and yeah, it was fancy leather couches and fine dining, but it was a prison all the same. I think that's why he comes to Jesus. Because he knows something's wrong. Frederick Buechner, the great theologian, said the problem with money is that we can solve so many of the ordinary problems of life with it, right? Like you can solve, you know, if you're going to be able to eat and if you have shelter and those kind of things. But when we we start thinking that we can we have money, we start thinking we can solve the big problems in life, like how to have happiness and how to love and be loved and how to find meaning and purpose in your life. And people who have a lot are tempted to think they can get those answers with their checkbooks. That's why Jesus says it is harder for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that kind of rich, eternal life that starts now. It's harder for them than it is for basically a Cadillac to go through a revolving door. Because the rich young ruler had a lot, but he was in his own prison. And here's the thing he dies. And his stuff goes to his nearest relatives. And all you know about him is the thing he let define him. He could have been one of Jesus' first followers. He could have been, for thousands of years, we could have been naming our sons after this guy. It would have been Peter and Paul and James and Tony or whatever. But instead, we don't know. He missed it and the kingdom of God just went Do you know what the opposite of greed is in Christianity? It's liberalis. Liberal. That's not about how you vote. It's about being free. It's about liberty to be free. The great Christian thinker Thomas Aquinas said, it is enough for people to only have a few things. So liberal people are commendable because in general they give away more than they keep. He, he goes on to say that God loves to do this. To give people more than they need so that they may find great joy and generosity and good stewardship. Aquinas is assuming that if you have a lot of income, it's not to be spent on just upgrading your lifestyle every time. But to Christians these days, that's not obvious at all. At least not in the West. It's an intimidating thing. And the reason... Aquinas actually says, okay, this is going to hurt. At first it hurts. But the reason it hurts is because we've bought into the idea of ownership. We think we own stuff. So let Scripture wash over for you a second. Paul in 1 Corinthians. What do you have that you have not received? What do I have that I have not received? Yeah, you've got your thriving company and you're really good at X, Y, and Z. Who gave you those gifts? Who gave you that talent? Who gave you that family that you were born into in this season of your life? What do you have that you do not have, have given to you? And here's where it, help, it helps us to see it from the outside. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a great book, Screwtape Letters, which was kind of like a satire of an uncle demon coaching his nephew demon on how to get the humans. And he said, Uncle Wormwood said to his nephew demon, you know what will help? The sense of ownership in human beings is always to be encouraged. Humans are always putting up claims to ownership that sound equally funny in heaven and in hell. And we've got to keep them doing so. We, the demons, produce this sense of ownership not only by pride but also by confusion. But the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, our father, Satan, or the enemy God, will say mine of each thing that exists and especially of each person. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their soul, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them. Whatever happens. At present, the enemy says mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic grounds that he made it. And our Father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. You are not your own. Your stuff really isn't your stuff. And the pain of generosity... And let's be honest, it can be painful. It's actually the pain of letting the cuffs off that have started to grow into the skin. It's the pain of growing freed. So how do we do this practically? Since we're talking about preaching about what we practice. This is what Christians have done for 2,000 years. You know the earth, one of the earliest Christian letters we have, First Corinthians. It's uh, 20 years after the resurrection. I mean, it is really early, and the church Paul's writing. They're crazy. They're like, you know, they Jesus just rose from the dead. They're like, 500 people were like, yeah, no, I saw him. Shook his hand, ate breakfast with him, and the the people in Corinth are like, is that really a thing? Because they're not dumb. I mean, they're like us. That's not usual. And so Paul, in this first letter, writes 53 verses. Super long section on resurrection. And he's like, listen, God rose Jesus from the dead. He's going to raise you from the dead. He's going to raise me from the dead. He's going to raise our bodies from the dead. What God did for Jesus, He's going to do for every one of us. And then he goes straight in. There's no chapter breaks. He goes straight into now about the collection. <laughs> Tell me that's not a preacher. <laughs> He, 53 verses about the resurrection, and then he goes, now about the collection. (laughs) Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, tell me, why does he tell us to practice this on the first day of the week? Resurrection. What did God do on the first day of the week? Resurrection. What you should do is set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Basically as uh, uh, the, the Greek word there is, however you have prospered. Mm-hmm. So how have you prospered? Maybe do a long soul check on that. Yeah. What has God given to me? Yeah. Why has God been so good to me? And He's not trying to get your money because He's going to take it and He's giving it to the Jerusalem poor. Paul is saying this is one of the things we do when we gather together because he knows your money can be a powerful trap or a powerful testimony. We, because the resurrection has happened, we don't have to treat money the way we used to. We don't, the world, the universe isn't the way we thought it was. Karl Marx is describing human history. He is not describing a new humanity. Because we don't think like everyone else. We don't have to build bigger barns. We are free to own nothing and yet have everything. And that's what we're doing every week. We're fighting for freedom. So since COVID, we don't pass, you know, plates and trays and stuff. And there's some losses with that. Because... One of the things that happens when you pass a plate, it's why we want our kids to come up here and start doing that regularly. It's so one of the things that happens when you just give online is they might not see. Not that you're doing it for other people to see, but you might want your kids to know. One of the things Leslie and I have done forever is leaned over and told our kids what we could have bought instead with the money we just gave. Um, that's why sometimes we cry in church. This could buy an American girl doll, you know? (laughs) But we want them to see, we want them to know these are choices that we're making as a family and as a church family. That's what we're doing every week. We are fighting for each other's freedom. I like the way one preacher, Will Willimon, says this. He says, if you could, in the worship of the church, when the offering plate is passed and we're asked to put our money where our hearts are, and we're asked to, we are asked to take a stand publicly to say just where we are in regard to the things of this world. This may be one of the most radical, countercultural, defiant acts the church demands of us. It's the tip of the iceberg, but it's something we do if you're a follower of Jesus. It's a must if you want to be free. It's not something you can just do on your own, it's something we practice. You know the story behind these buckets? A guy named William Booth started the Salvation Army because he saw a couple hundred years ago in England, every fifth resident was a tavern. And the taverns were full of men spending their income uh, instead of providing for their family. In fact, it was also getting to where they were setting up child booths for the children, get them started young. And these people were sleeping without homes and they weren't having meals. And so William Booth started this organization that still exists and is one of the top organizations for benevolence in our world. It regularly comes in as one of the most efficient ways of getting resources to the poor and uh, uh, under resourced. And the history behind this is that one of the, uh, that it's also, the Salvation Army is also a standing local church that's doing a lot of good work. And the history behind these things is that there is a guy named Captain Joseph McPhee who a hundred plus years ago was looking at all the homeless people who weren't going to have Christmas and Thanksgiving and he couldn't sleep at night. And so he had a dream about a pot that just kept being refilled. And he decided to put it out where people... We're shopping. And over the last few years, they, they feed millions through the holidays, which is why these things exist. I don't know what your relationship is to these people, but I know that every time I go to Walmart or Target during the holidays, what's your temptation? What do you want to do? Ring the bell, that's a very good answer, yes. Uh, what do other people want to do? Go in the other door, maybe? Yeah. I, you know, you like try not to make eye contact. You go in, like, I'm sorry, I have five children, just it let me through. <laughs> but here's one of the things that happens, and this is why I'm so grateful for these people and this organization and why I want you to see them in a new light. Do you realize that you're going into a store to solve a problem that other people would love to have? You're going in to put food in your refrigerator and there are people in our community that would love to have a refrigerator. And it is easy when you're in the stores, when you're watching the advertisements tonight, when you're seeing all these things, to be reminded of what you don't have. But what these people do is remind us how much we have already received. And this is what we do when we pass the plate. When we give, we're reminded the universe doesn't work the way we thought it did. We reflect on how much we have already prospered. And we give back, not out of duty, but of great joy. William Booth who started the Salvation Army, and by the way, I'd love to fill this up when we send it back to him. Who started the Salvation Army, prayed when he was 20 years old. He got on his knees and he said, Father, I want you to have all of William Booth.